Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay. Welcome back to Social Distancing Radio for part 50 of Dracula. I've read this book 10 or 12 times in my life, and it still always surprises me a little how long it is. And episode 99 of Social Distancing Radio, not counting the Patreon episodes. I've got to do something special for episode 100, but I have no idea what it is. Um, So while I think about that, I'm going to have this sip of reading wine. Mm. Oh yeah, I needed that. Most definitely. Okay. This is still the journal of Mina Harker. Let's see if they've learned anything in the night. I'm betting the answer is no. 2 October, 10 p.m. Last night I slept but did not dream. I must have slept soundly for I was not waked by Jonathan coming to bed. But the sleep has not refreshed me. For today I feel terribly weak and spiritless. I spent all yesterday trying to read or lying down dozing. In the afternoon, Mr. Renfield asked if he might see me. Poor man, he was very gentle, and when I came away, he kissed my hand and bade God bless me. Some way it affected me much. I am crying when I think of him. This is a new weakness of which I must be careful. Jonathan would be miserable if he knew I had been crying. He and the others were out till dinner time, and they all came in tired. I did what I could to brighten them up, and I suppose that the effort did me good, for I forgot how tired I was. After dinner, they sent me to bed, and all went off to smoke together, as they said, but I knew that they wanted to tell each other what had occurred to each during the day. I could see from Jonathan's manner that he had something important to communicate. I was not so sleepy as I should have been, so before they went, I asked Dr. Seward to give me a little opiate of some kind, as I had not slept well the night before. He very kindly made me up a sleeping draft, which he gave to me, telling me that it would do me no harm, as it was very mild. I have taken it and am waiting for sleep, which still keeps aloof. I hope I have not done wrong, for sleep begins to flirt with me and new fear comes, that I may have been foolish in thus depriving myself of the power of waking. I might want it. Here comes sleep. Good night. Chapter 20. Jonathan Harker's Journal. 1 October, evening. I found Thomas Snelling in his house at Bethnal Green, but unhappily he was not in a condition to remember anything. The very prospect of beer which my expected coming had opened to him had proved too much, and he had begun too early on his expected debauch. I learned, however, from his wife, who seemed a decent, poor soul, that he was only the assistant to Smollett, who of the two mates was the responsible person. 
So off I drove to Walworth and found Mr. Joseph Smollett at home and in his shirt sleeves, taking a late tea out of a saucer. He is a decent, intelligent fellow, distinctly of good, reliable type of workman, and with a headpiece of his own. He remembered all about the incident of the boxes, and from a wonderful dog's-eared notebook, which he produced from some mysterious receptacle about the seat of his trousers, and which had hieroglyphical entries in thick, half-obliterated pencil, he gave me the destinations of the boxes. There were, he said, six in the cartload, which he took from Carfax and left at 197 Chickson Street, Mile End, Newtown, and another six which he deposited at Jamaica Lane, Bermondsey. If then the Count meant to scatter these ghastly refuges of his over London, these places were chosen as the first of delivery, so that later he might, he might distribute more fully. The systemic manner in which this was done made me think that he could not mean to confine himself to two sides of London. He was now fixed on the far east of the northern shore, on the east of the southern shore, and on the south. The north and west were surely never meant to be left out of his diabol diabolical scheme, let alone the city itself and the very heart of fashionable London in the southwest and west. I went back to Smollett and asked him if he could tell us if any other boxes had been taken from Carfax. He replied, "'Well, Governor, you treated me very handsome.' I had given him half a sovereign. And I'll tell you all I know. I heard a man by the name of Bloxham say four nights ago in the Aaron Owns in Pincher's Alley as how he and his mate had had a rare dusty job in an old house at Perfect. There ain't a many such jobs as this year, and I'm thinking that maybe Sam Bloxham could tell you summit. I asked if he could tell me where to find him. I told him that if he could get me the address, it would be worth another half sovereign to him. So he gulped down the rest of his tea and stood up, saying that he was going to begin the search then and there. At the door he stopped and said, Look here, Governor, there ain't no sense in me a keeping you here. I may find Sam soon or a mant, but anyhow he ain't like to be in a way to tell you much tonight. Sam is a rare one when he starts on the booze. If you can give me an envelope with a stamp on it and put your address on it, I'll find out where Sam is to be found and post it to you tonight. But you'd better be up arter him soon in the morning, or maybe you won't catch him. For Sam gets off main early. Never mind the booze the night afore. This was all practical. Sorry. This was all practical, so one of the children went off with a penny to buy an envelope and a sheet of paper and to keep the change. When she came back, I addressed the envelope and stamped it, and when Smollett had again faithfully promised to post the address when found, I took my way to home. We're on the track, anyhow. I am tired tonight and want sleep. Mina is fast asleep and looks a little too pale. Her eyes look as though she has been crying. Poor dear, I have no doubt it frets her to keep be kept in the dark, and it may make her doubly anxious about me and the others. But it is best as it is. It is better to be disappointed and worried in such a way now than to have her nerve broken. The doctors were quite right to insist on her being kept out of this dreadful business. I must be firm, for on me this particular burden of silence must rest. I shall not ever enter on the subject with her under any circumstances. Indeed, it may not be a hard task, after all, for she herself has become reticent on the subject and has not spoken of the Count or his doings ever since we told her of our decision. 2 October, Evening A long and trying and exciting day. By the first post I got my directed envelope with a dirty scrap of paper enclosed, on which was written, with a carpenter's pencil, in a sprawling hand, Sam Bloxham, Corcoran's, 4, Potter's Court, Bartle Street, Walworth. 
Arsk for the de- Arsk for the depite deputy Arsk for the deputy. Let's say that. I got the letter in bed and rose without waking Mina. She looked heavy and sleepy and pale and far from well. I determined not to wake her, but that when I should return from this new search, I would arrange for her going back to Exeter. I think she would be happier in her own home with her daily tasks to interest her than in being here amongst us and in ignorance. I only saw Dr. Seward for a moment and told him where I was off to, promising to come back and tell the rest so soon as I should have found out anything. I drove to Walworth and found, with some difficulty, Potter's Court. Mr. Smollett's spelling misled me, as I asked for Potter's Court instead of Potter's Court. However, when I had found the court, I had no difficulty in discovering Corcoran's lodging house. When I asked the man who came to the door for the depite, he shook his head and said, I don't know him. There ain't no such a person here. I never heard of him in all my bloomin' days. Don't believe there ain't nobody of that kind living here or anywheres. I took out Smollett's letter, and as I read it, it seemed to me that the lesson of the spelling of the name of the court might guide me. What are you? I asked. I'm the deputy, he answered. I saw at once that he was on the right track. Phonetic spelling had again misled me. A half-crown tip put the deputy's knowledge at my disposal, and I learned that Mr. Bloxham, who had slept off the remains of his beer on the previous night at Corcoran's, had left for his work at Poplar at five o'clock that morning. He could not tell me where the place of work was situated, but he had a vague idea that it was some kind of newfangled warehouse, and with this slender clue I had to start for Poplar. It was twelve o'clock before I got any satisfactory hint of such a building, and this I got at a coffee shop, where some workmen were having their dinner. One of these suggested that there was being erected at Cross Angel Street a new cold storage building, and as this suited the condition of a newfangled warehouse, I at once drove to it. An interview with a surly gatekeeper and a surlier foreman, both of whom were appeased with the coin of the realm, put me on the track of Bloxham. He was sent for on my suggesting that I was willing to pay his day's wages to his foreman for the privilege of asking him a few questions on a private matter. He was a smart enough fellow, though rough of speech and bearing. When I'd promised to pay for his information and given him an earnest, he told me that he had made two journeys between Carfax and a house in Piccadilly, and had taken from this house to the latter nine great boxes, main heavy ones, with a horse and cart hired by him for this purpose. I asked him if he could tell me the number of the house in Piccadilly, to which he replied, Well, Governor, I forgets the number, but it was only a few doors from a big white church or something of the kind, not long built. It was a dusty old house, too, though nothing to the dustiness of the house we took the bloomin' boxes from. How did you get into the houses if they were both empty? There was the old party what engaged me awaitin' in the house at Purfleet. He helped me to lift the boxes and put them in the dray. Curse me, but he was the strongest chap I ever struck, and, old him, and him an old feller with a white mustache, one that thin you would think you wouldn't throw a shatter. How this phrase thrilled through me. Why, he took up his end of the boxes like they was pounds of tea, and me a-puffin' and a-blowin' afore I could upend mine anyhow, and I'm no chicken neither. How did you get into the house in Piccadilly, I asked. He was there, too. He must have started off and got there afore me, for when I rung of the bell, he came and opened the door hisself and helped me to carry the boxes into the hall. The whole nine? I asked. Yes. There was five in the first load and four in the second. It was main dry work, and I don't so well remember how I got home. I interrupted him. Were the boxes left in the hall? 
Yes. It was a big all, and there was nothing else in it. I made one more attempt to further matters. You didn't have any key. Never used no key nor nothing. The old gent, he opened the door himself and shut it again when I drove off. I don't remember the last time, but that was the beer. And you can't remember the the number of the house. No, sir, but you needn't have no difficulty about that. It's a high end with a stone front with a bow on it, and I keep step up to the door. And I steps up to the door. I know them steps haven't had to carry the boxes up with three loafers what come round to earn a copper. The old gent give them shillings, and they see and they got so much they wanted more. But he took one of them by the shoulder and was like to throw him down the steps till the lot of them went away cussing. I thought that with this description I could find the house. So having paid my friend for his information, I started off for Piccadilly. I gained a new painful experience. The Count could, it was evident, handle the earth boxes himself. If so, time was precious, for now that he had achieved a certain amount of distribution, he could, by choosing his own time, complete the task unobserved. At Piccadilly Circus I discharged my cab and walked westward beyond the junior constitutional I came across the house described, and was satisfied that this was the next of the lairs arranged by Dracula. The house looked as though it had been long untenanted. The windows were encrusted with dust and the shutters were up. All the framework was black with time, and from the iron the paint had mostly scaled away. It was evident that up to lately there had been a large notice board in front of the balcony. It had, however, been roughly torn away, the uprights which had supported it still remaining. Behind the rails of the balcony I I saw there were some loose boards, whose raw edges looked white. I would have given a good deal to have been able to see the notice board intact, as it would perhaps have given some clue to the ownership of the house. I remembered my experience of the investigation and purchase of Carfax, and I could not but feel that I could find the former owner. If I could find the former owner, there might be some means discovered of gaining access to the house. There was at present nothing to be learned from the Piccadilly side, and nothing could be done, so I went round to the back to see if anything could be gathered from this quarter. The mews were active, the Piccadilly houses being mostly in occupation. I asked one or two of the grooms and helpers whom I saw around if they could tell me anything about the empty house. One of them said that he heard it had lately been taken, but he couldn't say from whom. He told me, however, that up to very lately there had been a notice board of for sale up, and that perhaps Mitchell's sons and Candy, the house agents, could tell me something, as he thought he remembered seeing the name of that firm on the board. I did not wish to seem too eager, so or to let my informant know or guess too much. So thanking him in the usual manner, I strolled away. It was now growing dusk, and the autumn night was closing in, so I did not lose any time. Having learned the address of Mitchell Sons and Candy from a directory at the Berkeley, I was soon at their office in Sackville Street. Oh, that was a good chapter. Um, I really like the kind of subtle humor of how often he has to bribe people and things like that. And I kind of like Jonathan Harker detective, you know, but at the same time, like my gosh, people you've all read about Lucy's death. Good grief. You all know her progression of symptoms. Why is nobody freaking out about Mina? It's a really lousy job. These people are doing, you know, they're doing the usual horror movie thing of like justifying the circumstances to themselves and blah, blah, blah. And I just, I don't know. Like, do better. Do better, Jonathan Harker. That's what I have to say. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.
Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org.